This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 13th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Christian Kerner joins Alexa Billow to discuss the right way to store carbon in trees. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on a potential biomarker for concussion. Concussions are a hot topic in sports, and there are a lot of questions out there. We can't tell exactly who has them and how quickly they recover from a concussion. So researchers are looking for some kind of test, some type of scan. What do we have now? How can we say definitively whether or not someone has a concussion? Well, we can't really. I mean, there aren't really any good objective medical tests that establish whether someone has had a concussion. So what doctors and coaches sort of rely on often is for an athlete to self-report the symptoms. The problem with that is athletes really want to get back on the field. So it's hard to know whether they're really feeling better or just feel like getting back on the field. Okay. So now we have a study that focused on a protein in the blood called the tau protein. And why did they focus on this one in particular? Well, this is a protein that's been linked to traumatic brain injury and also to Alzheimer's disease. And it's been found elevated in the blood of Olympic boxers and concussed ice hockey players. So researchers suspect it has some link to concussion. And what they suspect in this study is the higher the levels of tau might be an indicator of sort of how severe the concussion was and how soon an athlete could return to the field. And they looked at a broad range of athletes, right? And they they took tau measurements over time? Yeah, they looked at 600 male and female uh, college athletes, played sports like football, basketball, hockey, and lacrosse. And they sort of measured their baseline tau levels and sort of throughout the year as they were playing sports. And what they found is that 61% of the concussed athletes, so of these athletes that got a concussion, who weren't clear to return to the field for more than 10 days, so they had a pretty severe concussion, had significantly higher levels of the tau protein in their blood than players did who had milder concussions and who returned to the field a lot earlier. 
So 61% is it's a number. It's an okay <laughs> number. It seems a little bit um, correlation. It's a little bit of a correlation right now, and it's a little bit more complicated because it doesn't say yes head injury or no head injury. That's right. I mean, it's only the researchers found it was only about eighty-one percent accurate. Also, the tau that they're measuring is tau that's circulating in the blood, mm-hmm. not in the brain. So it's sort of an indirect measurement of what's actually going on in the brain. So, so nobody's saying that this test should be applied right now to figure out when to send athletes back into the field. But the researchers are hoping to optimize it to get that eighty-one percent up to a hundred percent. Now we have a story on the hagfish. I didn't know much about these animals before reading the story. One thing I did hear a lot about was that if you put a hagfish in a bucket, it'll fill it up with so much slime, it looks like an eel in a jello mold. Ew. Uh, yeah. So hagfish look like eels. They're a very primitive fish. They have cartilage instead of bones. They don't even really have a spinal cord. They have something called a notochord, which is just much more simple. So Let's talk about slime first, and then we'll move on to some of the other things that came up at this meeting. What's the slime for? Well, you know, the researchers thought that the slime helped hagfish avoid shark attacks. Like, this, the fish were so slimy. What we do know is that when sharks bite hagfish, the hagfish often escaped unscathed. And a lot of researchers said, well, it must be the slime. Maybe the slime makes them slippery. But actually, one of these new studies, and there's actually three new studies mm-hmm. on hagfish, um, all coming up in a meeting that happened uh, last week in New Orleans, is that actually it's because of the hagfish's loose skin. They have this really loose skin. And so when the shark bites the skin, often that skin is not covering any sort of vital organ. So even if the hagfish gets bitten, it can escape pretty easily without having any sort of major injuries. Yeah, I watched some videos of this that came out a few years ago that inspired this study. And there's a lot of fish trying to bite hagfish underwater, and they get you know, a little piece of them in the mouth, but then the hagfish just seem to escape unscathed. They just seem to swim away. Yeah. Um, and that actually brings up a video that is in this article. Uh, it's a hagfish tying itself into a knot. Why do they do that? Well, you know, this is another sort of unusual ability of hagfish. They really tie themselves up tightly. And actually, this loose skin actually may, maybe helps them do that a little bit. They're able to do this because they actually have muscle fibers embedded in their skin, which gives them a lot of flexibility, but it also gives them a lot of leverage. When they tie themselves into knots, they're really able to tear apart their dinner. They get a, they're able to sort of get the leverage to do that that they wouldn't otherwise have if they weren't tied into a knot. And this is especially important for hagfish because actually they lack a traditional jaw. So they really need sort of this extra assist to tear their food apart. And so having loose skin helps them tie themselves in knots and helps them evade predators. It also helps them squeeze into really, really tiny spaces. Yeah, they can actually get into slits that are half of their body width. It's kind of amazing to watch. And again, here's where the loose skin really seems to come in handy because it allows the hagfish to sort of contort itself into these uh, really sort of thin shapes to squeeze itself into these really tight spaces. Like we always seem to see in these types of studies these days, they cap it off by saying, We can build a robot based on this animal that we are now understanding better and better. What would we need a hagfish robot for? Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like researchers are just using this as an excuse to sort of justify looking at these very cool animals. But you could imagine, I mean, especially when you have like a search and rescue mission, if you've got a robot that can really get into tight spaces, say under rubble, that's going to be much more effective at potentially detecting people who are buried. 
Last up, we have a story on a super cheap centrifuge. Centrifuges are pretty common lab equipment, but they're not easy to come by in the developing world. They can be expensive and require power. But they are important for testing blood samples. Now a research team has come up with a paper version. Okay, Dave, please make me a centrifuge out of this string, paper, and sticks that I've got here. You have 15 minutes. Wow. I don't know if I can do that, but I do know how the researchers did it. They turned to a toy, actually a very ancient toy known as the whirly gig, also known as the buzzer, the bull roarer, and the zambado, perhaps depending on where you grew up. But basically, this is uh, kind of a piece of string with a maybe a pinwheel in the middle, sometimes a button in the middle, and basically you pull the string at both ends, and that middle part just spins around really quick. And there's a nice video, which I think you made, Sarah, yes. that's <laughs> that's uh, that's on the site. You can just sort of see this thing in action. And so the scientists had this bright idea that like, hey, this thing in the middle spins really quickly. I wonder if we could optimize it and have it spin so quickly that it could actually spin blood samples just like a centrifuge does. What I really like about this story is that despite the toy being so old, no one knew how it worked, why things spin so fast in the center. You know, my favorite kind of science is the right under your nose type discoveries. What did they learn about the mechanism? Well, the team found out that when you pull these strings, they twist into these tightly clumped coils, and these coils store a ton of energy. And when you release the energy in that coil um, or those coils, it's really what gets that middle part to spin. So the first thing they did was really try to optimize that to get that middle part, the pinwheel, to spin as fast as possible. They actually got it to spin up to 125,000 revolutions a minute, and a lot of centrifuges only spin at 100 thousand revolutions per minute. These are typically big machines. They're hooked up to electricity. They've got big motors. And the fact that you could do this with a toy, basically, that you can make for about 20 cents with your hands is actually pretty remarkable. Right. And a lot of the video is just someone doing it because it (laughs) takes about two minutes to spin down on a tiny little blood sample. But with the ability to separate blood, you can look at things like, is there malaria in there or how much iron content is there? But one thing that comes up in these made-for-the-developing-world type situations is that these devices need to get to the right people and they need to actually be used. Is that something that they're working on in conjunction with inventing this device? And that, that is a concern. And the researchers here are working with a nonprofit in Madagascar to try to get uh, a lot of the locals to adopt this technology. It's almost hard to call it a technology when it's, it's so simple, but this can actually be very transformative for medicine in the developing world. Before we get to what else is on the site this week, Dave, do you have a quiz question for me? Okay, Sarah, hmm. which of these planets got no love from NASA when it selected its next set of low-cost missions? Was it Mercury, Venus, Mars, or Jupiter? I'm going to go with Mercury. Mercury doesn't get a lot of love. You are wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The right answer is Venus. Um, It got the shaft once again when NASA scientists dropped two potential missions to Venus last week in favor of two to some mysterious asteroids instead. Okay. All right. Why don't you tell us what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about what your dog hears when you talk to him and how that might foster his ability to learn. Also, why and how scientists switched on a predatory kill instinct in mice 
and turn them into super killers? Maybe the why is more pertinent question here. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about whether the U.S. should fund high-risk studies into making viruses more dangerous. Also a story about a backlash against a Cleveland Clinic doctor who wrote an anti-vaccination column. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. If you're like me, when the weekend comes, you don't want to sit around the house. You want to get out with the family, explore new places, and try new things. Maybe check out a science museum, hit a festival, or just head out into nature. Well, the new Toyota Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with its sleek design and aggressive new front grille that say you've got an attitude for adventure. Its improved powertrain makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. It has Toyota Safety Sense technology standard, including a pre-collision system and lane departure alert. It even has five USB charging ports, because you know the last thing you want is for someone's device to run out of power. And one of my favorite features is Driver Easy Speak, which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seats so your passengers can hear you. Doesn't mean they'll listen, but at least they can hear you. So navigate to your nearest Toyota dealer or toyota.com and see why there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of roads, weather, and the vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. See owner's manual for additional limitations and details. The TSS pre-collision system is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. Lane departure alert is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. It's widely held that our world's forests act as carbon sinks. Trees are made of carbon, so tree growth snatches carbon out of the atmosphere and sequesters it away. But how good of a sink are they? It depends on the timing. In an essay published this week, Christian Kerner explains. He says the key to carbon sequestration is not how fast trees grow, but how long they stick around. Dr. Kerner, thanks for joining us today. Hello. So in your essay, you make the point that fast-growing trees also tend to turn over quickly, whether the trees die or they're harvested or what have you. Why does that happen and why doesn't it contribute to carbon sequestration? This is so because it is not tree growth, but the difference between growth and decay which matters. It's just like a bank account. The capital parked there cannot be predicted from deposits. You need to know the withdrawals as well. So there may be a lot of deposits. And in the forest language, we would say carbon input. And there could be lots of withdrawals. That could be logging or tree decay. But a high through flow of money is not the same as capital. There may, in fact... A slow flow in and a slow flow out, and there could be very big capital. So assuming deposits equal capital is naive. It's just as naive as assuming that tree growth represents carbon sequestration in the sense of forming a carbon capital. 
Instead, you tell us it's about the longevity of trees. So if I'm understanding correctly, you can put money in your checking account and you can take it out. That doesn't mean there's anything in there at all. But if you leave it in there for a longer time, there's going to be more of it, especially if it's earning interest. Exactly. It's the duration. The duration you keep the money in your account is controlling. It's summing up. Always in the balance between input and output, depositing and withdrawing. But in between, there needs to be a time to build up capital. And it's exactly the same in forests. So people are constantly confusing the rate of tree growth with the building of capital by ignoring that at the same time, while one tree is growing there, another tree is dying elsewhere. It's not just lay people. It's actually a big crowd of scientists out there that make these false assumptions that if there's any change in the environment that causes trees to grow faster, they take this and cite this and quote this as an issue of carbon sequestration, which is not. When I talk to ecologists or biologists, they often are astonished and say, but the tree is growing. Isn't it fixing up carbon? I said, yes, it does. But you must not just look at that single tree, just look around. In the wider landscape, you find trees being harvested, you find trees dying, and it's the balance between these two processes that matters. The net primary production of a forest is not equal to carbon sequestration, and counterintuitively, the two processes seem to be at odds or even opposites. Why is that? I guess most people have seen highly productive tree plantations with trees like poplars or eucalypts or pines made for very rapid production of pulp and timber. If you then compare just what you see when you look at such a plantation, this with much less productive natural forests like old growth Douglas fir forests or hardwood forests, they store far more of capital or they are far less productive. In other words, they are far less interesting for the pulp and timber industry, but they stock a lot of carbon. So another thing you talk about is the resonance of carbon in soil and how nutrients other than carbon, like nitrogen, for example, can actually affect the residency of carbon. So why do other nutrients matter to how long carbon can stick around? On the one hand side, we know that about half of plant biomass is carbon. And we always think of biomass, but people forget the soils. Soils represent an enormous carbon bank account, if you like. First, there is much more carbon capital in the soils as we see in biomass above the ground. And second, that carbon stays there for a long, long time, hundreds of years, even thousands of years. But people often consider soils similar to coal mine, which is very wrong. These soils don't just store carbon, they store soil organic matter, often addressed as humus. And that includes lots of precious plant nutrients that are not available to plants as soon as they go into that organic soil carbon pool. Plants cannot take out nutrients from that organic material. They need dissolved nutrients. So that means storing carbon in soils also means removing nutrients away from plant availability. And as a net outcome, we can see a slowing of plant growth. That can even be tested experimentally. If you add sugar or sawdust or something like that, microbes tie that carbon up, but because they also need other nutrients, they take also the nutrients away from the plants. So 
soils are, I would put it that way, we should not hope for soils to store a lot of carbon because that carbon would tie up nutrients that otherwise could be used by plants for their growing. Clearly, there are some parts of this narrative that a lot of people have some misconceptions about. The basic idea that a lot of us have in our heads is, well, plant a tree, save the world. So is planting trees as helpful as we think it is? And is there something we can do besides that to help carbon sequestration in our lives? I think planting trees is always great. I mean, the more trees we have, the more carbon is tied up in the biosphere. But there's one thing to remember. In most places where you can plant a tree, there had been trees before. So that means we are just, if we plant trees, we are repaying a depth. It takes 100, 200 or even more years to reinstall the carbon capital that was in such a forest a few hundred years ago. So planting trees is good because it always means widening the forest covered area, but it is much less good as preserving old growth forests. These forests accumulate a lot of carbon. And if we harvest them, this is just like a mining industry. You go in there, you haven't invested anything in the growth of these trees. You just take the carbon in terms of pulp or timber away. And then it takes another 100 to 200 years to rebuild that capital. So I think society's needs for pulp and timber would best be covered by using a sustainable way of tree plantation industry rather than mining old growth forests. Christian, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks very much for the opportunity to communicate that important issue. It was really good to talk to you. Christian Kerner is the author of A Perspective on Carbon Sequestration in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.